But this morning, I wanted to talk about the three landscapes of the Christian walk. And let me just read you three little passages that um, bring this out. I'll tell you why we're going on this theme uh, in a second. Matthew 17, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then in Matthew 4, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came. And then a very familiar little passage of Scripture, you'll all know it very well, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me to lie down in green pastures and beside still waters. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. Those are three landscapes of the Christian faith. The summit or the mountaintop, the wilderness or the desert, and the valley. And um, if we forget there are three, we really struggle in the Christian faith. In fact, we make shipwreck of it. If we know how to value all three, then we can live a life of fullness. I was moved to think about this because I was watching a documentary on the megachurch movement, Hillsong. It was called Hillsong, God Goes Viral. You can catch it on the BBC iPlayer. And uh, I got to say it made me very sad because a lot of Hillsong pastors are falling. Falling due to hypocrisy. Um, maybe spending church funds on a rock star lifestyle and getting caught. Uh, maybe, like Carl Lentz in New York, committing adultery while urging everyone to a life of absolute purity. The documentary is not very well made, and there's a slight suspicion of takedown. I would say. Hillsong I know, and you probably know it too, uh, because you can hardly have a prayer, praise meeting without singing a Hillsong song. And uh, I remember once arriving in Sydney in the Sunday morning, and the thing you need to do to get over jet lag, as you know, is you must not go to bed at the time you arrive. You must stay awake and go to bed with the locals, as it were. 
And so I said, well, how do I stay awake? I just want to sleep. They said, we've got the perfect solution for you. We'll take you to the Hillsong evening service. Nobody's going to fall asleep in that service. And they were right. Because Hillsong is really a mega church that specializes in offering the kind of same vibe as a rock concert. Um, and at the same volume. Uh, the environment is usually a theater, no windows, and that enables them to have rather spectacular lighting effects. Uh, everyone at the front is very good at their instruments and very, very good looking. <laughs> They're also, maybe even more important, very, very hip and very loud. They wouldn't want me to preach at Hillsong, not in a blazer, get away. The preachers are also very hip. They pogo around the stage, and they have a high-octane gospel. And it's quite good because I think it delivers a sort of reassuring feel that Christianity does belong in the 21st century. It's a pretty successful contextualization. I know that's an awful word for people who are, you know, they're used to the adrenaline of a U2 concert or a Coldplay concert. For them, Hillsong really says, huh, so this could be church too. But there's a problem, and that is that the, Christ the Christian life is often presented in terms of a series of summit experiences. The summit stands for seeing Jesus in all His glory, right? That's what those disciples get on the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe for others it takes the form of a, a grand deliverance. Maybe a vision or a feeling of just absolute bliss. An act of great power. We all have experiences of the summit. But the problem is... We can't live there. Let's build three tents, says Peter. What's he saying? Let's stay up here. This is great. What a sight. Jesus in a transfigured form, walking around with the two great prophets of Israel who are thought to be long dead. What's not to like? What an adrenaline rush. Who wants to come down from a place like that? But they can't live there. They have to come down and they have to live in the valley because there are three landscapes to the Christian life, not one. And I think that's what happened to some of the preachers at at Hillsong, and I'm not hitting on this movement because a lot of the megachurches are exactly the same. But they have, many of them define the Christian life as if it's always lived on the summit. The gatherings are so high octane, and if you're revving everybody up, you've got to make some, for want of a better term, brand promises. Jesus is always close. Victories all around. Doubts are, impossi Doubts are impossible. Deliverances are commonplace. 
Miracles even are normal. Drama, drama, drama. We get those moments. But if we try to live there, we end up paying a terrible price. We end up pretending we're there when we're not. And I'm afraid I know this firsthand. I would love a Christian life where Jesus was so palpable you could touch him at every moment. I would love it when every time I prayed, healing would happen just the way I asked for it. I would love it if every time I witnessed, the Spirit would convict the hearers. Every time I tried to do good in the world, there would be the right kind of stir. And even if I got persecuted for it, I'd count it all joy. But it's not the Christian life. Summits are ecstasy hour. But summit experiences are vanishingly small. Jesus in his lifetime has only three in the entire Gospels. And if we think the Christian life is where Jesus is close and miracles are commonplace and joy is unclouded, what's going to happen when real life intervenes? When reality strikes? We pray God suddenly doesn't deliver. Or it gets worse when that warm buzz we always had when we read the Bible suddenly just seems to be quiet, a void. When the fruit we counted on starts to dry up or even rot, and God just doesn't seem to be prospering us like He used to. Well, one of two things will happen when this begins. We either pretend or descend. Pretending is an option. You sweep away the sin in order to get that glory back. Oh, it's something to do with me. But you know you're no longer living on Ecstasy Street. And then, but if you're a preacher, for example, you've got to keep pretending that you are. Because that's the brand. That's why they're coming to the service. And then a voice starts to creep in. Yeah, but you don't have that, do you? You're not living it. And if that's going on, the way we deal with it is we start to have secret addictions where we get the adrenaline some other way. And we create rooms in the soul where Jesus doesn't go. Oh, we can still stand up on a Sunday and believe everything we say. But the same person may have a hopeless addiction to internet porn. Because they're struggling. They can't live at the summit. And this is how they get rounded. Because the brain compartmentalizes. 
brain is brilliant at this. Thank goodness, it's one of the ways we survive. But this is a pathology. And it's miserable. And the trouble with this is you can't meet your own standards. Three landscapes. I mean, imagine if you read a book about tackling Everest. It was 500 pages long, and it was all about standing on the summit. You'd think there was something slightly wrong about that. Because the drama, in some ways, of climbing Everest is getting fit enough, raising the funds, making the climb, the base camps, overcoming the obstacles to get up, and, of course, to get down safely, because you haven't really climbed a mountain unless you're down safely. The summit, standing on the summit, is the point of the whole thing, but it's not. It's a tiny part of the whole experience. I remember John Wimber, when he came to the UK, and the charismatic movement was having a, a kind of spike. And I remember the gasp of astonishment when somebody asked him, when you pray for healing, how many get healed? He said about 5%. And we all thought, so, when we pray for healing, and we should, but you've got to set yourself up for a 95% failure rate. What do you do with that? What does that say? It says that life is not lived at the summit. There are other landscapes, and they're just as beautiful in their own way. Once at New Wine, I heard a preacher say to the crowd, everyone come out who needs healing. And you are not leaving tonight. I guarantee, these were his words, I guarantee you will not leave this room or this tent without your healing. Now, that preacher's a fool, and he's mixed himself up with God too much. Doesn't know the difference. But you can't make that guarantee, because Christianity is not lived at the summit. He's forgotten the other landscapes of the Christian faith. So, pretend or descend. Descend down where? Well, to these other landscapes. Well, what are they? Well, one is a wilderness. Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, it says. A wilderness is a place where there's no life. It's a hostile environment. And most important of all, there's no water. That's why there's no life, relatively speaking. If God doesn't feed us, we're finished. That's the thing about the wilderness. Now, the essence of the wilderness seems to be that our companions are devils. God seems to be deaf. The summit experiences are gone. Everything's going wrong. Maybe we've been led there, or maybe we've ended up there because of our own folly. Okay, but whatever, the spiritual experience has become one 
of barrenness, of desertion, of breakdown even. Habits that once were common to us, they get sheared off in the wilderness. I'll tell you, an early casualty I find from the wilderness is intercessory prayer. That goes really quick. Because you pray for something and it gets worse. You pray again and it gets even worse. So you stop. You've got to survive. You've got to keep hope. You don't want to keep getting crushed. Hope becomes incredibly expensive. And so you learn maybe a different way of praying. You learn to shut up. You learn to be silent. You get cured of the talkiness. And suddenly you find out that actually maybe there's a greater adventure with God beyond the senses, in silence. But you'll never hear much about that, though it's in the Christian tradition. But it's a kind of minority report. How do you write your Christmas letter after a year in the wilderness? What do you say? It's a kind of version of the John Lennon song. I'm just watching the wheels go round and round. But there's something very necessary about the wilderness. Because if the summit is there to show us how beautiful God is, the wilderness is there to show us what we are really like. And it cures us of one of the worst spiritual conditions of all, the idea that we get to God and God owes us. Ah, Lord, I've done a lot of work on this sermon. You've got to bless it. You owe me. No, he doesn't. It's up to him entirely what is going on. Remember when Jesus goes to Simon the Pharisee's house and a woman washes Jesus' feet with her hair. She's unnamed in the Gospels. Simon is appalled. He's a holy man. He wouldn't let a woman like that touch him because God owes him. He's in a system where if he keeps pure, God will bless me. She doesn't have that. She's come from the wilderness, if you like. She knows how much she's been forgiven. And that's why she weeps in the presence of Jesus and touches him. I mean, touches him. You think in the Gospels, not a lot of people get to touch Jesus. It's actually quite rare. She does, and he lets her weep, and he lets her touch him. She's far more a Christian than the holy man. The holy man doesn't really get that this is God. But she did. She does. Because of where she's been. A wilderness is like, it, it's like identity school. This is who we are before God. This is where we find out. Everything gets stripped out. It's the place where God stops meeting our expectations. 
and the place we find out we're not the person we thought we were. And that's what's tough about the wilderness, to face the fact that we're a lot uglier than we thought. Facing the liar that is deep down, facing the deceiver, facing stuff about ourselves that nobody else knows and we'd never tell for fear that people would stop loving us. But once we know that, you can return to God in the right spirit. My soul, my soul thirsts for you, says David, in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. The thing about the wilderness experience, though, very often, is you find that people in church are quite anxious to hurry you out of it. I remember at the same new wine conference, I was teaching on the book of Job. I was going through the book of Job, so it wasn't the main attraction, it has to be said, that, of the week of that conference. But we had a good number. What was fascinating to me, though, was the number of Christians that would come up and say that they had to stop going to church through their really tough experience. Because they couldn't keep handling the expectation, well, aren't you over it by now? Is your wife not healed yet? Buck up. Make a decision. But we're in the wilderness due to the kindness of God. Remember in Deuteronomy 8, God draws the Israelites into the wilderness and He humbles them and it says, to know what was in your heart but it also says that the goal is, verse 16, says to do you good in the end. So if we're in the wilderness, it means God's got plans for us. God hasn't stopped caring, even though there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence to the contrary. You might be in a far country, or you feel like you're in a far country, just like the prodigal. But the Father is still looking out for you. The embrace is waiting. And you're going to go back to the Father with the right attitude and receive the fullness because you'll be lovely and empty. So the filling will be all the greater. And then the valley. The valley is where we mostly live. The thing about a valley, of course, is it's flat. And it's usually got a river. In other words, life is possible here. Community life, I mean. Uh, you can grow things. You can, and if you can grow things, you can build cities. You can have a nation. The nations of civilizations, the history of civilizations, are all about valleys, aren't they? The Indus Valley, the Euphrates Valley, the Yangtze Valley, the Nile Valley. It's all about valleys. Valleys is where life takes place. It's where we live, work, have families, and we make love and war. In Scripture, valley life isn't dull, even though it's not the summit. It's not dull. In fact, it's bursting with life. It's the only place 
where we can live together and flourish. The promised land is called a land full of valleys watered by springs. That's where Israel will be a nation, in the valleys. The psalmist calls the Lord the one who makes springs gush forth in the valleys. It's verdant. It's beautiful. It's the world of real life. Moses comes down from the mountain with the commandments, the place of revelation. But where do you obey these commandments? In the plains, in the valleys. They don't all go back up the mountain. And so the valley is where we live together, where we welcome the stranger, where mission is possible, really. And that the second feature of the valley in the Bible, though, and that is the valleys where wars take place and are won or lost. It's when nations, where nations rise and fall. And this, again, is due to the fact that it's flat. And when you're flat, when, it, when the terrain is flat, you can get certain... Uh, Weaponry on the, on the plains that you can't have in the hills, like chariots. And so if you look at the Bible again, it's in the valleys that all the great wars and, and victories and reversals take place. The valley of Elah is where Goliath is slain. The valley of Siddim is where the first battle takes place in the Bible, where the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are routed. When the Israelites enter the land of the Amalekites and Canaanites, they're living in the valleys. The world will end in a valley, the valley of Jezreel. But the spiritual point is that valley life requires us to suit up for the spiritual battle. War is part of the valley. War, spiritual battle, is part of our life in the valley. We have to take our stand. Victories take, take place in the valleys. Skirmishes happen in the hills. And so that's where we have to remember the warning of the persecuted that you raised funds for so generously last week. Um, I remember meeting a great leader called Li Qianin in 2010. And I said, what's your greatest fear? He said, oh, my greatest fear is that a time is coming in China where it will no longer cost us to witness for Christ. He said, that's my greatest fear. He says, the moment that comes about, our revival is threatened. Because he said, what spreads the gospel is the cost. People say, I've got to take that gospel seriously because um, it's costing that person to tell me. They're taking a risk. And that makes the gospel gallop. Well, Lee Chien-en doesn't have to worry. Well, he's gone to glory. But also, of course, it's much worse in China again. It's much harder to be a Christian. It costs a lot to witness for Christ since the rise of that dreadful dictator, Li Xi Jinping, in 2013. But, in some ways, the church is saying, well, that's actually quite good news. The revival is safe. So, welcome to life in the valley. It's a place, it's not just a place of flourishing, 
It's a place of battle. I was talking to a bunch of young people recently, and they were all activists on fire. But I was worried about them because they seemed to think that when you fight a battle and you become an activist, you're going to win in three years or you're going to win in six months. But you're always fighting. You need to be an enduring activist. There will be reversals. The powers that be are not going to smile and give way. You've got to keep at it. So, if you're on the summit right now, well, rejoice. I'm glad for you. But don't tell anybody this is what the Christian life is mostly like. Or you'll screw them up. And you'll screw yourself up. Don't try to live there, because otherwise we'll learn to do a lot of pretending, and you will, be, you will have to compensate and try to get the same adrenaline rush from somewhere else. And that leads to some dark places. I remember having to accompany a very famous healing evangelist. You would know his name. And I discovered that really in the first two weeks that I was traveling with him, my job became going to the hotel room before he got to it and disposing of the minibar. He was a full-on alcoholic. Now, he was what they call a functioning alcoholic. But that was what he had to do. I felt sorry for him. That's what he had to do to deal with the fact that when he stood up, he knew he wasn't on the summit like he was asking everybody else to be. That was how he dealt with it. The Christian life is not one bungee jump of joy. But we get glimpses of the glory of God. And maybe some of us here, maybe it's time to dust off an experience of the summit and recall it again and savor it. It's maybe on the shelf. Bring it back out onto the table. Have a look. These glimpses of God are given for our encouragement. They're just glimpses. They're rare, but they're very powerful if we keep remembering them. Everybody gets a piece of treasure even though you think that somebody else is having all the joy. And some of you will be in the wilderness right now. I've got a very strong feeling that there are quite a few here in this situation. And maybe you haven't told anybody about it. It's too personal. Maybe only you know how bereft you feel, how defeated you are, you haven't shared it for the best possible reasons. You don't want to discourage anyone. Or maybe some do know and they're trying to buck you up or getting a little fed up. But here's God's special word to you 
If you're in that situation now at this time, you're only in the wilderness because God wants to give more of himself to you. That's why you're there. And he's getting you ready for a new life of blessing and power. You'll look back and you'll bless God for the time in the wilderness. Though it's asking a bit much when you're in the wilderness to say, I really blessed you for leading me in here. I think that's probably too much. It's when you leave the wilderness that you realize how necessary it was. But the whole point is, you'll never forget how much you've been forgiven. And that's going to make all the difference again. That will restore you to a greater level of fullness and joy. God wants to embrace you. And that's why he's hollowing us out for this deeper, more beautiful filling. I had a wilderness experience not so long ago, and I remember writing this. I said, it's never too late for it all to work out, but it's better to get to a place where it doesn't matter if it does or not. The wilderness is where you get cured of tasks and goals, and it becomes about knowing and receiving and loving. Deserts, as it were, detach. They detach us from things. You know, when we think about the challenge of the 21st century, the, the main ethical question I think we're all going to have to struggle with, if we're not already, is why stay human? That's the big question. Why stay human? You know, we're now gaining the power to control our own evolution. Computing power has largely given it to us because we've cracked the genome. That was possible through computers. We couldn't do it by ourselves. And, of course, we've seen that we have a body that's rather weak and fragile. And we needed, again, great power of ingenuity and processing speed to come up with these antidotes to deal with the virus. Why were we designed to be so weak to viruses? But we've taken the antidote, most of us have anyway, and we're wanting more because the whole story with humanity is going to be, well, we're a bit too weak. We need to keep enhancing ourselves. Ultimately, to cellular regeneration so that we won't die at 70 anymore or 130. They're talking about it. Google is making most investment in this. And of course, death is solved by technology for those guys. And you, especially your children, will really have to face this one. Is it worthwhile staying weak? Or should we all evolve into a powerful post-human state? Who's going to tell the world that the essence of being human is to be weak, is to be empty, and why that's good. It's people who've come from the wilderness 
And they know the power of that. Most of us, though, are in the valley, the valley of normal life, where we flourish and fight. And as I say, we've got to make sure we don't settle for any form of Christianity that downplays the centrality of the spiritual battle. COVID-26 happens next week. I was having a dream, actually, that I was asked to preach a sermon at that conference. That was really a weird dream, wasn't it? And I thought, I woke up thinking, well, what would be the text that I would use if I ever got that invitation? And it hasn't come yet. Um, I think it would be 1 Timothy 6, 8. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Isn't that the answer to climate change? Because the problem is the mad, insane desire to have more of everything. That's what's driving this whole commercial response that is making this environment less and less hospitable. And that's the big question of the 20th century, 21st century too. Can we have abundance without affluence? Can we have abundance without affluence? I don't think they're asking that quite so much at COP26, but that's the deepest problem. That's the deepest question. This crazy desire to have more of everything. Because if enough is never enough, then more will never suffice. And that's why we need the summit. And to remember the summit experiences. Because abundance really consists in glimpsing God. Abundance is spiritual, not material. The material is just wearing out, as our bodies are. It's never satisfied. The abundance that we can show the world comes from the summit and valuing those summit experiences. And so then you can live out the answer to the world's problems that COP27 trying to solve. We can show how to be satisfied without a big fat pension. Without homes, with more bedrooms than we can sleep in. Without brutally expensive hobbies and holidays. Show how to stop the striving that's killing the planet and our life on it. If we're satisfied with God, the striving stops, or at least it really reigns in. And a softer footprint is left on this beautiful earth. Well, why stay human? And can we have abundance without affluences? Affluence. These are the big battles of today. These are the battles of the valley where we're in. But we need all three landscapes to live out the answer so the world will see. And the world will get interested. And the kingdom will grow. Three landscapes 
If we remember, it's all three. The summit, the wilderness, and the valley. All three. Then we can live the answers, which alone will make the world a proper place to live, fight, and die in. Amen? Amen. Shall we pray? Gracious Father, how we thank you for the terrain to which you call us to live. Thank you for the summits. Thank you for the glimpses you give us of your glory and your beauty. But we thank you too for the wilderness, for the time when we have to learn the harder lessons and realize how much we are truly forgiven and sought by you. And thank you for the valley. Thank you for the flourishing and the beauty of it and the ability to live with so many other people in a community. But make us aware of the fight as well. The war, the enemies that are around us that want to take us down because we belong to you. Thank you for these landscapes, Lord. Make them all part of our Christian life, we pray. Amen.